From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting, though, with the announcement that you just heard about on the news. This came from the Ministry of Public Safety and Solicitor General's Office. Stable funding for sexual assault programs in this province. I think what it recognizes is that when we've got uh, new standards in place, there's an opportunity to ensure that all cases are, are dealt with thoroughly. Uh, and if there are issues that need to be looked at, then that we're able to do that. Uh, we want to make sure that, uh, that victims and survivors know um, whether they choose to report or not, that they are going to be believed, that their case is going to be thoroughly investigated, and that the supports that they, that they need will be there for them. That was Minister Mike Farnworth speaking earlier today. Joining us now to talk more about this is Angela Marie McDougall, Executive Director of the Battered Women's Support Society. Angela, thank you so much for taking some time today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Jill, and I'm so happy for the rain, I am telling you. So many people. Uh, yeah, it doesn't take long uh, for uh, to go from complaining about the rain to uh, <laughs> many people are very pleased about it today. Um, I know this was just announced earlier today, but again, it is talking about new funding or stable funding. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is annual funding for 68 new sexual assault programs throughout mm-hmm. the province. Uh, they're designed to, to deliver that to community-based services, mm-hmm. those services. What are your thoughts? on that? Well, of course, uh, always happy to see that there has been an infusion of funds for uh, for survivors uh, to receive supports that they need and, and that there's been, uh, you know, some investment in at least uh, one position or to augment an existing position uh, with it throughout the province, uh, which has been the, pro- that's been the priority of the provincial government as sexual assault has been there policy priorities so they've been taking steps and one of those has been to uh ha- to com- to increase funding or actually to have sp- funding and to have that funding uh uh delivered uh throughout the province in the release that was put out earlier today it also talks about adding new programs and supports saying it will add five regional sexual assault centers that provide those spaces delivering services mm-hmm. for survivors how is that different then if we're talking about spaces like Vancouver rape relief or or other spaces that people might be familiar mm-hmm. with right so what they're doing uh, well I guess the first thing I want to say is that the funding is welcomed uh, it, it is welcomed. It ends up being a, a, around ninety thousand dollars per read, per organization, which is about one position, uh, or to augment an existing position that might not have been funded. You know, because I think we have to recognize that a lot of this is new funding. It had, didn't exist before, so services could have been provided by organizations that didn't have funding, for example. So it helps augment that. And with the, with the other pieces, is the sexual assault centers. That's uh, uh, about $300,000 for each um, organization that they're choosing, I think about five or six throughout the province, that then would have the, um, it would be to deliver services that would include being able to do the sexual assault uh, examination on site. Uh, It would include some, you know, to increase some additional support for organizations. The idea is to build a more community-based intervention rather than the hospital, for example, which many survivors would find more comfortable to be within a community organization that's set up to provide services in that way. 
Right, and that makes a lot of sense for sure. Uh, it also talks about new policing standards, saying mm-hmm. that these new standards will be guided by victim-centered, trauma-informed, inclusive, culturally safe approaches. It says that police officers will work in collaboration with victim services workers mm-hmm. to consider the unique unique needs of survivors. Was was mm-hmm. none of that, or was that not happening previously? <laughs> Uh, well, I'm chuckling because no, huh. <laughs> no, Jill, it was not happening uh, previously. And, you know, we, you know, I, I'm so privileged to have been able to provide, uh, it, you know, consul- I was a part of the consultation and provided uh, feedback on the guidelines and but really on the principle of the guidelines. And, and, I, and I think for, you know, for us to consider, you know, for your listeners and for all of us to be considering what are we talking about when we're talking about guidelines? It, it, and these are guidelines to guide policing agencies, so RCMP, municipal police throughout the province, and how they will conduct invest, investigations, how they will, uh, you know, respond. And so part of it, I think, in the guiding principles that um, uh, Minister Farnworth had announced today, you know, is, you know it's all super um, progressive in the sense that it recognizes the uh, you know the the range of of identities and and com- compounding um, kind of impacts and barriers that various survivors will have within the system. It also recognizes that most survivors are not accessing police, which is really important. And I think, it, it, and they and their own uh, stats are saying six percent, which uh, we would agree with uh, with that somewhere in there. And so that means that the vast majority of survivors don't access the, the police. And I think. What the intention is and what well, is in their uh, press release is that they want these guidelines to create a, the conditions where more survivors would then feel comfortable to report to the police. And th- herein lies the rub. And this is where, uh, you know, I think that the issue is that we know that guidelines uh, does not change an organizational culture. And there's longstanding problems, deep problems within policing agencies, the RCMP, and in various municipal police forces in the province uh, on how they are responding to sexual assault, sexualized violence. And it's, it's embedded in the culture. And the guidelines, the question then is, to what extent will the guidelines actually help shift the culture? Uh, and it's the culture, ultimately, that is the, the organizational culture, ultimately, is going to uh, guide uh, whether these guidelines are implemented. And, and the one benefit that the guidelines has, that, you know, will provide them is that it will provide a mechanism for frontline organizations then to hold police accountable for their own guidelines, which is a big part of what we end up doing. And we, and we know this because of similar guidelines that were created around domestic violence, intimate partner violence, which we, you know, a big portion of, of you know, my, my, you know, my coworkers' time, our time, is spent literally holding police accountable to their own guidelines, wanting them to follow their own guidelines. Uh, so it provides that kind of accountability uh, mechanism. But the issue is the same. Will this be enough to uh, deal with the organizational cultures within different police forces? And, you know, Joe, you may recall uh, some egregious cases, uh, particularly, a, you know, a young uh, girl who was sexually assaulted in Kelowna mm-hmm. and how the Kelowna RCMP uh, was just abhorrent and how they interviewed her, how they didn't follow through in the investigation. And, you know, there's some regions of the province that have been really problematic. And Kelowna is one and Prince George is another. Well-documented issues, well-documented 
Uh, and, and of course, I know from talking to our colleagues in the region that, you know, what they deal with on the daily. Yeah, in that case, I remember watching the the video of that when when that young girl had gone to uh, police and some of the questions that she was asked. Uh, is is that the not the norm though? Is that or or do you hear more and more cases like that? You know, anytime it's sort of like when you know when cameras camera phones began to highlight problems, right? Like with policing or with different issues. You know, it's like suddenly it's making visible that which is rendered invisible. Only peop- only person that gets to see what's happening in those, you know, in those in those interview rooms are the survivor and the the member of law enforcement. So you know, and 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 it's just because we were able to see the video evidence ourselves and to be evaluated. So I know that there are many police that do a good job in the investigation. They're caring. They follow their own practices. They understand that. And I know that there's a lot that do not. And often it's a result of problematic organizational cultural practices that are in, in place and that are very resistant to change. Uh, one other question on that, because the timing seems like it's not all that urgent. And it says no. <laughs> uh, the, the release says the funding for sexual assault services programs will begin July 2023. So that's great. That's this yeah. month. That's where we are right now. But it then says that the new policing standards will take place in effect or will take effect in 2024, it doesn't say when, uh, allowing for police and police boards to, to make the changes or to implement the requirements. What are your thoughts on the fact that the, the timeline is sometime in 2024? Well, I mean, I think they said July in 2024, but it's not all that urgent, is it? I mean, it's not uh, giving the sense that this is an urgent matter, even though it's been highlighted already by survivors and by frontline workers. Uh, that it's urgent, but it probably has to do with the, um, you know, we've had a big uh, kind of change within policing. There's been a lot of longstanding police members that have retired. There's been big recruiting efforts. And so there's lots of new, relatively new, uh, you know, police members who are, you know, youngish, younger uh, in age, who are coming into RCMP, coming into Mitchell Police. And there's a lot of training and other things that they have to be trained on. And so it ends up being a part of how quick can they get training in place that, you know, within a training roster that is already been established um, based on other, you know, other um, kind of skills and techniques that police, you know, police need to have. So it probably has to do with a schedule that they're already on and they're trying to fit it in that schedule because they would be, you know, they would probably be fo- focusing, you know, more on other issues, which could be more around addressing, um, you know, public safety in, the, in, a, in, a, in a different way in the sense of what, um, you know, like mental health issues or, uh, you know, dealing with, um, you know, maybe, you know, dealing with, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm sort of speculating here, but I think it probably has a lot to do with, uh, you know, their own priorities and what, uh, techniques that they want their members to learn, what issues that they want their members, what awareness that they want their members to have. And this fits into that timeline that they've already established. But, you know, it's a year from now, which it, it's kind of interesting that it got announced today um, because it's uh, a little bit anticlimactic in that sense that, you know, okay, well, it's going to happen next year. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, and the other thing that I want to point out here is that they talk about victim service there and that, they, you know, that police will be working with victim service. And we have to uh, note that there are two versions of victim service providers 
in the province of British Columbia. One version is within police. That's a police-based victim services. They're housed within the police. They're um, they're uh, a part of the police institution. And then there's community-based victim service, which is like organizations like the one I work for, and you know, and and others all throughout the province. And so one is kind of in the institution, one is in community. And so what isn't clear is, are we talking, what are we talking about in terms of victim service? And we know that the police-based victim service play a key role in supporting survivors uh, and, and people, victims of crime, a really important role. And they're limited by their uh, kind of, con- while they're confined within the policing agency in the sense of community-based uh, uh, victim services have um, a bit more flexibility in terms of meeting a survivor's needs on the longer term because they're, they're in the community where the survivor lives. They can connect sur- the survivor to other resources, including the victim support. They can develop a longer term uh, relationship with the survivor uh, and meet, you know, because it's never just about the sexual assault. It can also be about housing. It can be about, um, you know, income. It can be about counseling. Like there's so many things that end up being a part of it. So um, understanding that the rules of police basic and services and community basic and services is important here and looking at how these guidelines will roll out. Well, I know we will be looking at this again and as this happens. Angela, always great to talk with you. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Joe. I wish you all the best. Well, there has been a lot of discussion over the overdose prevention, overdose prevention site that is located in Yaletown. It's at 1101 Seymour Street. It now looks as though that site is going to be closed as the re- lease will not be renewed at the end of March of 2024. So what is going to happen to that site or is another location going to be found? Peter Meisner joins us now, a Vancouver City Councillor. Councillor, thank you so much for making some time. Of course. Thanks, Jill, for the opportunity. I know there is also a lot of debate about the site itself, perhaps not so much what is happening inside the site at 1101 Seymour, but what is happening outside of the site. What have you been hearing from people? Yeah, so this is probably the topic that uh, I hear from people in the neighbourhood the most about. Uh, I field several emails a day uh, from neighbours who are concerned about uh, how uh, things have uh, quickly deteriorated outside the site. Uh, so that's everything from uh, needles, uh, camping on the sidewalk, uh, fights, uh, street disorder, uh, garbage, uh, drug paraphernalia, uh, and it is an area with a lot of families. It is right across from uh, M- M- or, um, um, the uh, park there. And uh, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, community members who don't feel comfortable uh, walking perhaps on that side of the street uh, with their children. So uh, a lot of uh, community concern, and we've been doing what we can to try to work with the operators of the site. Um, but I think uh, we've realized that this is just not an appropriate location for the OPS. Uh, One of the posts that was made about this and showed pictures of people outside the site saying, here are people, they are smoking fentanyl under my window. It's been like this, uh, documented on several days, uh, people saying they don't feel safe walking around the site that's located in that Yelltown neighbourhood. Why is it, do you think, or I, I, I know that the site, the site itself where it's an overdose prevention site. So there, there are people that are coming there. The whole point is that if you are overdosing or if you, if you are at risk of that, that you won't because you're inside the site. Why are people doing this outside the site? 
Yeah, I think I think the uh, location and, and the, the physical space itself is just not appropriate for an OPS. It's very, very small. Um, I've been inside myself, and it's a, it's a tiny space. Um, so the, one of the issues with it is that uh, there's no room for queuing, for example. So I think that's why you're seeing a lot of people uh, outside the site. And then once they've, uh, you know, used the services of the OPS, then they're out on the sidewalk, and there's not really like a respite area for them to go to. Um, and also there's no safe inhalation component to the site either. And most people are uh, consuming drugs by smoking drugs, so they can't do that inside. Uh, and there are um, inhalation booths that are being introduced in the downtown east side. We recently a- approved a pilot from Health Canada. But at this site, there's just no room to do something like that. So you're, you're seeing people outside uh, queuing around the site. And also after they use, there's not really like a place for them to go to come down, uh, so to say. So what is going to happen when the lease ends at the end of March or in March 2024? Yeah, so city staff, as I mentioned, have been trying to work with the operator to find a way to manage the public realm outside the site. Uh, so they, they took the decision not to renew the, the lease. This is not a council decision. Uh, so VCH, is, uh, Vancouver Coastal Health, is currently searching for an alternate location for the site. Uh, Downtown South has the second highest number of overdoses uh, for neighbourhoods in Vancouver. So we all agree that there's a need for this service, uh, for OPS, for supervised uh, consumption or injection of drugs. Um, but they need to find a site that is uh, better uh, uh, situated and more appropriate for the services that they're providing in terms of space, in terms of queuing, and in terms of having that, uh, that respite area after for people who are using the, the site. So I know this predates the current council then, but by looking at the vote at council when this did come and the site was set up several years ago, if the site is too small and it's not really working for what it's intended for and it's not giving people what they need, why was this ever approved? Yeah, I wasn't on council at the time, but I wouldn't have supported the site. I was, you know, I live in the neighborhood and I was concerned uh, about the impact it would have um, on the community. Uh, I didn't feel reassured uh, that uh, there was a sufficient plan to manage the public realm around the site. Uh, But we know we can't and we don't want to just close the site without giving them alternatives. So that's why we are keeping the lease in place until March 2024 so they can find a more appropriate location. But, you know, it is an overdose emergency is a toxic drug crisis and I think there was a recognition that you know we needed to do something or council at that time needed to do something quickly to respond so I understand why some councillors supported it but uh, obviously it's, it's not working uh, as intended and it's not working for the neighbourhood. Uh, one of your council colleagues uh, Christine Boyle uh, with One City uh, has put out a release today calling on on council that to say that closing the site without opening another similar facility is unacceptable is it out of council's hands though if it's Vancouver Coastal Health or, or how do you deal with that yeah, Coastal Health is, is leading the search for the site. Council is not involved in that. Uh, whatever site they, they identify, though, that, that will come to Council. But uh, we're, we're not talking about closing the site. We're talking about VCH relocating the site. So we, we are just not renewing the lease. And that, again, is not a Council decision. That's a city staff decision. They decided not to renew the lease. Uh, and that is likely based on their uh, conversations with the operator, as well as the concerns from the community that we've been highlighting uh, uh, to them. Uh, 
Is the idea, though, that if this so this lease will not be renewed at its current location in Yelltown, is the idea or the desire to keep a site in Yelltown but find a more appropriate space? Well, downtown South, as I mentioned, does have the second uh, highest number of overdoses in the city, that particular neighbourhood. So there is a clear need for the site somewhere within downtown South. I wouldn't necessarily say in Yaletown in particular. This site is really on the border of Yaletown. It's not actually really in Yaletown. It's adjacent to it. Um, but there is a clear need in downtown South for an overdose prevention site. So I'm hopeful that BCH can find a site that's appropriate. And also the most important thing is having that plan to manage the public realm around the site. I think that's what's been missing. And it's very unfortunate that the site has gone the way that it has because I think it erodes support for these services. And and we all recognize that these services are needed. They are saving lives. But, you know, it is eroding support in the community for for these types of services when you have those sorts of impacts on neighbours, including people that live in the non-market housing above the current OPS. I hear from them on a regular basis about how they're not feeling safe coming home at night, for example, because of the, the operation. Right. So how do you then get community support if if the idea is to move the site? And like you said, it is it is needed. There is a high number of overdoses in that part of the city. But if people are looking at what's been happening outside of this site, you're not going to find people who are going to be opening their arms and saying, yes, please come to my block. Please come to below my living room window and set up the new site here. I guess unless there is a way to do that, that's going to address the issue, the main issue of people doing the, whether it's fentanyl or or smoking things, doing this outside the site. So do you think having a bigger site or having the inhalation room, is that going to address those concerns? I think it's going to be a challenge for VCH, as you say. Uh, There needs to be a really robust plan to manage those impacts. And I I do agree that the experience with this site is going to color people's uh, opinions and and probably uh, play into their fears about uh, living next to a site like this. But I really do believe that there is a way to operate these sites that's more integrated into the community and mitigate some of those impacts. And and part of that is probably having a bigger and more appropriate space uh, for these services. So I'll I'll leave that to VCH, but any council decisions on these sites, they need to have a robust plan to manage the public realm around the site. And do you think, is it basically the neighbourhoods that we're talking about? Because you don't hear these uh, same complaints, at least, or if you do, they certainly don't get as much attention if there are concerns, say, about people outside of Insight, uh, more on the downtown east side. Is it some neighbourhoods are fine with it and, and don't to complain and others don't? I think there's, you know, many things uh, in the downtown east side that make the community unique uh, and distinct. And I think uh, most Vancouverites would agree that uh, there's things that you see in the downtown east side that you wouldn't see in other neighbourhoods, for example, in terms of on the sidewalks. Um, and, and many of those things are, are, are tragic. You know, we have people sleeping outside, people sleeping rough, uh, people using drugs openly. Um, so I think there's a, there's a difference, and I think that's why you're not hearing those complaints uh, from, from people in the downtown east side. And one other question about this, and I know this is also a question that that should probably go to Vancouver Coastal Health, but where does treatment fit in in all of this in that are we simply opening up sites in different locations? And yes, it is a good thing that these sites are saving lives, but are are we at the point where people are just openly doing drugs outside the front doors and nobody's talking about treatment or getting help for people who want it and need it? 
it's a huge part of the puzzle that's missing, in my opinion. I mean, you know, harm reduction is one piece of those four pillars, and there's certainly uh, a, a huge, massive need for, for treatment and recovery options for people. I know they are referring people to treatment if that's something that they're interested in, but there's just not enough beds for that. So, you know, we really need to see a big investment on the treatment and recovery side because we have people right now using the site and then going out on the sidewalk or into the alley, and then they're, they come back to use the site, and it's just a, a tragic cycle with really no way out. Um, so that that's a bigger conversation, and council is doing what it can to uh, engage with the province to make sure that treatment and recovery are part of the conversation. But absolutely, it's it's a big missing piece right now. And Peter, so just to reiterate as well, as it goes now, and I, I know it's a, a staff decision, and the letter came uh, earlier this month, I think July 19th, saying that the lease would not be renewed for the 1101 Seymour Street ops site. Uh, So is it in the hands of Vancouver Coastal Health now that the city is done as far as the end of March, but as far as another site being set up, that will have to be done by Vancouver Coastal Health? Yes, Vancouver Coastal Health is leading that search, and they've known that the lease was very unlikely to be renewed for several months now. Um, but they do still have eight months uh, left uh, in their search for a site. And from my understanding of what I know about it, again, I'm not directly involved, is that they have several sites identified as possible locations. Um, so that search is underway, and Vancouver Coastal Health will be, will be leading that. Peter Meisner, thank you so much for your time and for joining us today. Appreciate it. No problem, Jill. Well, it is uh, raining still in some parts of Metro Vancouver. I think a lot of people probably woke up today and thought, yes, it is nice to have a bit of rain for a change. The sunshine is coming back later this week, and it looks like it's going to stick around. And sadly, we've also learned that the chief coroner in B.C. is currently investigating as to whether or not three deaths in the province were related to those high temperatures we've been seeing. We also know there has been a big push to get air conditioning to people who are in those more vulnerable situations. But is that a good idea when we're looking at solutions and ways to deal with extreme heat to, to rely so much on air conditioning? Joining me now is Dr. Annabella Bonata, Manager and Research Associate at the Intex Centre on Climate Adaptation at the University of Waterloo. Thank you so much for taking some time with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks so much for having me. We have talked a lot about air conditioners in BC, and it's only been in the last few years with the higher temperatures that a lot of focus has been on that and the need for uh, air conditioners. But what are your thoughts on when we look at that as kind of a long-term solution when dealing with extreme heat? So unfortunately, it's not a great long-term solution. Uh, as you mentioned, it's it's a short-term solution, and really it's for those people that are the most vulnerable to extreme heat. So anybody with chronic disease, uh, living alone, um, the elderly, uh, when these extreme events happen, they're at risk of death, which we don't want to happen. So yes, air conditioning will absolutely uh, help with that. But in the long term, air conditioning actually leads to higher temperatures. It pumps heat from homes to the outside, and it also releases greenhouse gases, increasing the temperatures globally. Um, So short-term solution, not great for the long term. And when you talk about it pumps uh, heat from the homes to the outside, uh, anybody that has one of those portable air conditioning units uh, will know that, yes, the vent goes out a window in, in some configuration. And that how, how big of an issue, though, is it as far as when we have those portable air conditioners, as far as the amount of heat that gets pumped out? 
It's a pretty big issue. So if if you think, okay, we're going through an extreme heat event, there's an apartment building with 100 units, 100 air conditioners are on, that's a lot of heat being pumped outside. And this will usually occur in cities. And cities are um, go through the urban island heat effect, which means that they're already hotter than the surrounding areas. Uh, the pavement absorbs heat, um, the buildings absorb heat, and in the evening, release that heat back. So you don't get a cooling effect throughout the day or even in the evening as you would in the outside areas where there's more greenery. And like you said, if you're in a situation where maybe you're not incredibly mobile or you're living in a, in a unit where there is no other way to cool down, then air conditioning can and often is the only solution uh, on the short term. Uh, but so if, if we're not going to look at this or if it doesn't make a lot of sense to look at it in a, a long term way, what could be done rather than air conditioners? Yeah, so in the long term, we want to think about greening our spaces. So again, since the cities are the ones that really experience higher heat than the surrounding areas, we have to have green, greener cities with uh, parks surrounding buildings. Um, you can have plants climbing up uh, the building side or your home. Um, you can have plants inside of your home and on balconies. And all of this will help uh, reduce some of the heat. Uh, but you can also install some bigger things, so maybe some shades outside of windows. This isn't so common in Canada, but it's common in other countries that have experienced heat just normally. Um, or install windows that have a low solar heat gain coefficient, and that will also decrease the temperatures inside of your home without using air conditioning. Uh, I was talking to somebody uh, not too, too long ago that also put a film on their windows and not all of their windows, but I think it was just mainly the south facing windows and said, yeah, it did make it. So it was a little bit darker in uh, the living room or the rooms that had those windows, but said the the difference in the heat inside the rooms was was measurable, that it made it uh, made a huge difference doing that. Are, are those the kinds of things as well that maybe we never thought about that in the past, uh, but we need to? Exactly. So we, we hadn't thought about it, but we've been doing these things for the cold, so such as having like draft strips um, to increase the insulation around our windows. That will also work in the summer to kind of like keep that heat out, cool air in, and just even closing curtains. So we, you know, instead of letting that sunshine in in the summer, you want to close your curtains and that will already cool your, your room temperature quite a bit. Um, and opening up the windows in the evening, if it is um, projected that the temperatures are going to decrease in the evening, which might not happen in an extreme event, but it should cool down, um, then use the windows then. But you don't want to open them uh, during the day. So these are all yeah, like little things that you can do uh, that will make a bit of a difference in the air temperature inside of the room. And, and you just mentioned this, and I think that was the issue when we saw the heat dome in B.C. and many parts of the province and where, uh, sadly, more than, than 600 people passed away in heat-related deaths. So it didn't get cooler at night. A lot of people were in buildings that didn't have air conditioning, that didn't have uh, really good circulation to try and deal with this. Uh, but would that be the scenario that you're talking about where even if we don't want to rely on air conditioning, even doing the things that you just mentioned, that's not going to be enough to bring those temperatures down. In that situation, it wouldn't. And as climate gets more extreme, heat waves get longer, we have more heat domes. Unfortunately, we're going to have to rely on air conditioning for that short period of time. Um, and definitely, as you mentioned, these vulnerable populations are the ones that need it the most in order to save their lives. But also consider just cooling centers. So people can go to cooling centers if they don't have access to air conditioning. 
um, and checking on the on your vulnerable neighbors, family, because a lot of these people that were living in isolation, some of them had air conditioners, but they didn't have them on or weren't using them properly or not in the right room. So really, it's about checking in on, on the vulnerable people and uh, making sure that they have what they need um, and letting them know that an extreme event is coming. And when we talk about the use of them as well, I know you mentioned the amount of heat that the air conditioners will pump out of the homes, whether it's apartments or homes or townhomes where they're being used. What about the draw on electricity and the the increase in electricity use that we're seeing during these the, these heat events? So it's a huge uh, draw on electricity. So as you've probably heard as well, um, it actually caused uh, blackouts at different times. So in, in Ottawa recently, there was a blackout due to this um, draw of energy on the grid from just everybody having their air conditioning on. So it also just isn't realistic for the way that our energy systems are set up now. Uh, everything was built with a previous climate and it's not working for the current climate. So it it's not going to work if everybody has their air conditioning on. And if the lights go out, then you're still at risk. And those people that are vulnerable are still at risk of, of losing their lives. Um, so backup generators for the vulnerable population as well. Um, that's something to think about. Um, we've talked a lot, so or there certainly has been a push in this province, again, for heat pumps, things that can heat your homes in the winter, that can cool your homes during the summer months as well. Is it also an issue of maybe the technology changing or, or making a better air conditioner that doesn't come with some of the issues that you've outlined? Yeah, that's a big thing. So uh, there is a change to heat pumps where possible. And there is some funding for homes that want to upgrade to a heat pump because it is more efficient than than your usual air conditioning units, which um, have these greenhouse gases that are not so great being pumped out into the atmosphere and that are just not efficient at cooling down and removing that heat uh, in the way that a heat pump is. Um, Air conditioners were created many years ago and the technology is just being updated now. Uh, So that's also an issue here and something to think about. If you are upgrading and purchasing, think of a heat pump for your home. And just to go back to something you mentioned, and this is is other countries that have been dealing with this for quite some time. And and I think if you travel, like you said, you'll see homes that they're they're almost like a a bit of a a fortress. So when you see the windows are covered with either metal um, blinds or or shutters and also a different uh, type of material used to build the homes or or more heat sensitive or, or, or heat repellent, I suppose, materials. Is that something you think we should be looking at as well? It's it's a tricky one because we do have winter here as well and the materials aren't always the same, but definitely something to think about and look at what other countries have done. So in in different cities in Greece, they've painted the buildings white. And so that will actually reflect quite a bit of the light. Um, and these like outdoor shutters and awnings, that's something that, for example, I grew up with. I grew up in, in Mendoza, Argentina, and it's it's a desert. It's a desert province and very little air conditioning. Um, So the houses are a bit darker all the time. Your windows are are closed. Um, You don't have as much light as we have coming in here just because we're more used to a cold climate. So the big windows where we want that sunshine and in the winter, we want the opposite now for summer. Um, So there's some things that, yes, that we can learn from other countries, the materials that they use and uh, these things that they put around their home to decrease uh, temperatures. Well, it is certainly uh, something that people are spending a lot more time uh, thinking about and looking into. Uh, Dr. Annabella Bonata, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jill. This is great.
Well, a very popular app which helps get food to people who maybe otherwise wouldn't have access to it, keeps food from going into the garbage can, is getting even more popular. Joining us to talk more about this is Sarah Sodoroff, Senior PR Manager at Too Good To Go. Sarah, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Jill. Great to be here. Well, before we talk about how the company is expanding, can you remind us a little bit, or tell us a bit more, what does Too Good To Go do? Absolutely. So we are a marketplace for selling surplus food. We connect businesses who have that surplus with consumers who want to purchase it. And on average, those consumers are paying only one third of the retail cost for that food. So it helps to lower some of that food cost that we're seeing increase at a much faster pace than regular inflation. It helps the businesses to recoup what would otherwise be lost revenue that they would have to throw out due to food waste. And it helps everyone to reduce the harmful impacts of food waste on the environment. And we're really excited. We just launched in Abbotsford and Langley last week. So we're really pleased to come to the area. That's great that you've been able to expand to that area. How long have you been doing this? So Too Good To Go launched in Canada actually last week on the 21st of our two-year anniversary. Um, so we came, in, we launched in Toronto in July of 2021, and then we've been expanding throughout the country ever since. But the app itself was founded in Denmark in 2016 and expanded throughout Europe. So we have a ton of historical and institutional knowledge from those markets, and we've been able to bring it over really successfully to Canada. We are now in every major city in Canada, and we are continuing to expand outside of those city centers. So if we're not yet in your town or if we're not yet somewhere near you, we will be shortly, and we are calling on every business. If you have surplus food, there's a way to make money off of it so you can join us today. And what was it like as far as getting businesses to sign on or explaining to businesses how this works and how they could benefit? Yeah, I think it's um, people are always kind of waiting for the catch. <laughs> like they say, okay, that sounds great. I can make money off surplus food. What next? And it really is kind of a no-brainer. It's really just about connecting businesses with consumers. And that's kind of the biggest challenge is making sure that we have an accurate number of businesses and a good number of consumers who know about it so that we can actually get them to purchase all of the bags that do go on the app every day. But for the most part, it, the response has been super favorable, really positive. Businesses and food sellers don't want to waste their food. You know, they put time and effort and resources and love and attention into creating that food, and they don't want to see it go to waste. So finding an avenue for it is their ultimate goal. I think the money is a, is a great, you know, piece of, um, piece of the pie, but being able to reduce the impacts on the environment are really important, too. And as we're seeing, you know, constant heat waves and, and rising temperatures, we do know that the rising climate is really man-made. So if we can do something every day, which is reduce food waste to help combat it, it's a really easy way to kind of see some positive impacts. I would imagine, too, when it first started, if there weren't as many businesses, that that was good in a way and that there wouldn't have been as much competition, but maybe also then not as much choice. And to get more people signing on, you need more choices and more things for people to want to take from from the different places. So so it seems like each side needs each other. Yeah, it's definitely, well, it's a win-win for everybody, for the businesses, for the consumers, for the planet. So there's all of those fantastic benefits. I think some of our super fans from, you know, those first days are probably lamenting the fact that the app has gotten so popular because it makes it more difficult to get bags. But really what that means is, A, all of that food is being purchased, which is fantastic because it means it's not going to waste. And it also just means we need to ensure that we have an increased supply from all of our partners, that they're really making sure that when they do have surplus, they're putting it onto the app. And then that any new partner, just because we 
launched last week in, in the Fraser Valley doesn't mean that we're now not accepting new partners. And same thing for Ottawa, for Toronto, for Montreal, everywhere that we are. If you do sell food, you can join the app. So we're constantly growing. The great thing about a marketplace is that what you see on it today won't be what you see tomorrow. So there's always a reason to check back. There's different categories that are added all the time. Seasonal bags are added all the time. And even from your favorites, what you see in that bag, you know, what you might have picked up yesterday, it's not going to be the same mix of food tomorrow. So it is really kind of a fun catch and and you get to see different kinds of food and test out different kinds of food. And for the business, it's fantastic because you're always getting new customers in the door. And it's not just restaurants, I understand as well, convenience stores or anybody that sells food. Yes, anywhere that sells food has surplus. So it can be convenience stores, gas stations, um, you know, mom and pop bakeries. It can be your Tim Hortons. It can be anywhere that has food. And then at the same time, it can be maybe items. You know, we have a lot of partners who what they sell in the bag might be items that aren't fully made into a meal, but then you can create a meal out of what you get in your bag, out of things you have at home or things that then you maybe want to supplement and buy at full price. So it's a really creative way. I've learned so much about cooking from being on the app and I've, you know, really invigorated my own desire to cook more and to buy more things that I can make into real meals. And it's really been helpful to teach you about food and then also teach you about the surplus. And, and so remind us again, um, you, you've talked about the, the food bags and the different things that you can get. How does it actually work uh, when somebody goes onto the app? Do you, do you know what you're going to be getting? Do you know how close it is to its expiry date or how much information do you get? So everything on the app will be at or, or just, you know, like today as it's best before date. So nothing can be sold in the app that wouldn't be sold for full retail amount in store. You won't know the actual itemization of what's in your bag. That's why we call it a surprise bag. But you'll know the category. So you select the category. If it's breads and pastries, if it's um, prepared meals, if it's food items, if it's juices, you select that. And you can filter through the app based on the different kinds that you are preferring to pick up that day and the different times of day. So a partner might have a breads and pastry bag in the morning and then a prepared meal bag in the afternoon. So you'll see the value amount, the total value but you won't see the actual itemization and um, you know that you're paying on average about one third of that. So you're getting a ton of value for um, the discounted food that you're getting and you just go and pick it up in store. You show them the app, you have a unique code that matches theirs and then you swipe to pick up and off you go. Hmm. So do you find out then after you've purchased the surprise bag or whatever it is that you've purchased, do you then get the the confirmation and like you said, the code and that's when you find out the, the actual business? So you, you select the business. Sorry. So when you're um, on the app, you can pick, you can see the full name of the business. You can see the pickup window time. You can see the category of bag that's available and you'll see their address, obviously. So you can go and pick up. And then once you pick up the food, then you can open the bag and see the kind of, you know, mix that you got that day. And then we're always sharing that content. We encourage people to share it on your Instagram. We'll, re- we'll reshare it. It helps people see what kinds of different bags are in there. Um, there's a little description for each partner. So you'll get a typical understanding of the types of food, but you're just not going to know the full breakdown if it's, you know, cookies and croissants that day, or if it's a, you know, big roll and a croissant or something like that. Okay, that makes a lot more sense because people, I think, yeah. too, will will have their favorites. So, or if you already know a business and you know that you like most, if not all, of the food at that business, then even if you don't know what's in the bag, you still are probably pretty confident that you're going to enjoy what you're getting. 
Exactly. You probably know the kinds of food that they typically sell. And we encourage partners, too, to put as much description on there as that they can and also to you know link to their Instagram and consumers can see and do some research that way. And then favorite. If you get a bag that you love, favorite it so you'll get a little notification and know to go back to it next time you're looking to pick something up. But at the same time, it's always kind of fun to try out new places, too. You might not know what you're going to get. You might end up finding something in that that you want to go and purchase full price the next day. Uh, you mentioned as well, so you have officially launched in Abbotsford and Langley, and uh, I know you have some of the numbers as well when it comes to spoiled or uneaten food or just the amount of food that we waste. Yeah, we waste a ton of food. Nationally in Canada, we waste 58% of all the food we produce, which is a huge amount. It's higher than the global average of 40%. Regionally, we waste 515,000 meals. Um, sorry, we've saved 550,000 meals across BC, which is amazing. Locally, um, uneaten food in BC represents about 25% of all res- residential garbage. So that's a ton that we're throwing into the garbage. And a single family usually weighs around 389 kilos every year. That typically works out to about $2,000 of waste. So when we're thinking about ways to reduce our household costs or really how to make more money off of the food that we're already purchasing and save money on the things that we want to purchase at full price, it's a really important thing to think about. The impact on the environment is huge, but the impact on our wallets is just as big. Across the country, since we launched two years ago, we've saved over 2 million meals. We're really happy with the progress that we've seen there from 6,000 partners nationally. And then we really helped Canadians down to the dollar, make $28 million, save $28 million on food that they would otherwise pay full price for. So that's a ton of money, and it's real money that people can be putting towards things that they not necessarily can't you know, cut costs on. So it's a, been a big impact for all Canadians. Uh, definitely. Uh, you mentioned the, the price, the one-third of, of what something would cost. And, and how do you come up with that? Or how did, how did you work out kind of the, the selling point or what the selling price should be of the surplus food? So way a long time ago in 2016, when the app was founded, one third of all food um, on the planet went to waste. So that was a nice way for us to think about, you know, kind of putting that into our app. Since we've now actually increased that amount, that no longer has an exact correlation, but we found that that's a really good sweet spot for what people are willing to pay for a surprise item. So understanding that it's a surprise, you do have to go and pick it up. You pick up at the window that the store has decided upon, not necessarily the, the timing that is the most convenient for you. There has to be an incentive for the consumer, and that incentive is the price and, and ensuring that you're getting a ton of value for that cost. You also will see typically there might be um, some promo items that are in there, so you probably get a little bit more than that, but on average, it's about one-third off. Right, and with the promo items too, I'm guessing if a business, again, if a business has signed up to be part of this, they too are worried about food waste or at least take, paying attention to it and not wanting to waste food. So if it's a matter of, well, even if someone didn't pay for this, maybe this bonus item, if it's a, a matter of, I'm just going to throw it away, why not just give yeah. it to the consumer? Yeah, I, I mean, as I said, our partners are amazing. We've learned so much through them about the creativity that they're doing to reduce waste at the store level ways that they reincorporate food into new meals and into new dishes. And they're really looking for that food to get eaten because that's what it's produced for. So I think on, on average, you're always getting a little bit more. But, you know, even if you just get that value, that one-third value, you're still, you're still really saving a lot. And you're still helping out a local business, helping out the environment and eating great food. And I think the savvier consumers, as you start to pick more frequently from the app, you can decide you know, the ones that you like more than others and the time frame that works best for you. It's all kind of just a trial and error, but we're really seeing a ton of great feedback from the consumer and partner side and really happy that everyone is 
you know, understanding the model and really finding ways to help reduce their waste at every level. Uh, do you have plans for further expansion? Yes, absolutely. We're expanding every month. So check back on our Instagram often because we put all of our expansion city launch announced dates there. It's at toogoodtogo.can. And so if we're not in your city, we probably will be. But, you know, you can always comment in the comments on our Instagram post to places that you'd like to see us expand to. Our goal is to be everywhere in Canada and our goal is to reduce food waste everywhere in Canada. So to do that, we got to expand everywhere. And that's what we're aiming for. And remind people again, where can you get the app? So go to the App Store or Google Play Store, just click Too Good To Go, and you can download it there. If you're a business, you can go to toogoodtogo.ca and click For Businesses, and you can sign up there. Great information, and uh, congratulations on the expansion in the Fraser Valley. Thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.